Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, and if you are struggling in a high-conflict relationship, divorce, custody battle, or co-parenting situation that requires individualized attention, let Chris and Lisa at Been There Got Out hold your hand along the way while providing expert strategic guidance based on one's years of success as a pro se, coupled with the other's high-conflict divorce coach certification. Go to beentheregotout.com, and I will put that in the podcast links. I've got an excellent guest. Her name is Sybil Cummins. She is a licensed professional counselor and approved clinical supervisor running a small group private counseling practice in Arvada, Colorado. She specializes in working with victims and survivors of domestic violence and narcissistic abuse, including the youngest child witnesses to the abuse. Sybil has created a training website for other mental health professionals on working with survivors, including how to assess and safety plan, how to assess for domestic violence in couples therapy, and how to support victims and survivors when they are dealing with all aspects of the legal system. Sybil has provided several online training for a continuing education program for social workers as well. In order to close the gaps in support for survivors of narcissistic abuse, Sybil has balanced and launched a new online coaching program called Rising Beyond Power and Control. Members have access to virtual trainings, a safe online forum for connections, interviews with other experts, small group coaching sessions, and individual coaching sessions. The focus in this program is helping women manage post-separation abuse and heal from their abusive relationships. And I welcome you, Sybil, comes to my show. And boy, you're doing a lot. And how long have you been doing this? Yeah, thank you for having me. I have been working with this population um, for the last decade and had no idea that that was what was in store for me. Um, I really wanted to just work with children. When I went into counseling, that was my goal. I was only going to work with children. And in all the environments I found myself in working with kids, um, I worked in a hospital setting, I worked in agency and in private practice, I was working with domestic violence. So it is so common and didn't really know a whole heck of a lot about it. And so just... um, kind of had to really seek out information and training and um, learn from my clients even, which is not actually best practice, Mm -hmm. but there really isn't a place for therapists to um, really learn about working with domestic violence and narcissistic abuse. And so, um, yeah, I found myself doing it and um, really feeling passionate for the work mostly because I saw a lot of injustice that was no one was doing anything about. Hmm. And so that's sort of kind of how I got into, into this specific work in this population. Now, I know people say, well, we don't want to label or use narcissist or, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how did you stumble upon this narcissistic issue? Yeah, I think that um, I saw a lot of commonalities um, with specific cases of domestic violence that I worked with. So narcissistic abuse can be from any 
right? It could be a parent who's abusing someone. It could be a coworker, could be a family, you know, family member, friend. But what I was seeing within the romantic relationships is that there were differences or these subtle differences when there was something I would consider narcissistic abuse mm -hmm. than domestic violence where there wasn't narcissistic abuse within it. And so how I see the differences um, is that um, with narcissistic abuse, it really is looking at the aspects of the abuser. And so I always say, you know, domestic violence isn't necessarily always narcissistic abuse, but narcissistic abuse when done by an intimate partner is always domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And so it's really looking at um, kind of those characteristics of the abuser. Um, and, and some of the things that I really see when it is kind of really that narcissistic abuse is really that um, really tailored, well-developed mask. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that the abuser wears so that no one else in their ecology would even think this to be possible. Mm -hmm. um, whereas sometimes in domestic violence, when there isn't, it seems more credible, right? They might've gotten trouble at work for blowing up. They might, um, their family might for sure know that that's what's going on. And they'd be like, oh yeah, I could see him doing that or her doing that. Um, whereas in the narcissistic abuse, that mask, that presentation of having their victim partner's best interests at heart when making all the decisions and, um, you know, really good at feigning remorse for things, kind of feigning empathy that isn't actually present. Mm -hmm. um, that is much more, um, it's like more skilled when there's narcissistic abuse and when there's not. And how do you see this affecting children? Yeah, so that's something really is one of my specialties is I work with kids ages three and a half and up in my practice. And these relationships do have a really, really big, most of the time negative effect on the kids. And I know our conversation is I'm really focused on providing hope for parents who are in this situation and are so worried about the safety of their children. They might be worried about their child growing up to be just like the abusive parent, or they're worried that their children are just going to experience the same thing they've experienced, getting you know, being completely broken down and, you know, no self-worth and that they're going to wind up in an abusive behavior or abusive relationship themselves. Mm -hmm. So it does, it does, you know, really negatively affect these kiddos, but there is hope for resilience. So some of the things that I see um, kind of is based on age. I mean, there's a lot of things that I see, but um, based on if it's a male or female client or um, kind of whether the abuse is coming from the, um, if we're looking at heterosexual cis male, cis female couples, if we're looking at whether the the female partner is the narcissistic one versus the male partner. There's differences with that. Um, but what I see a lot of times in my boy clients is they really have either the need to protect. So they're really focused on what they should have done to protect their victim parent. 
mm -hmm. what they should have done to stand up to the abusive parent. Um, and so a lot of issues, especially in the play therapy room, if you're working with little ones, you're not sitting down across a couch and talking, you're, you're playing things out. Um, the themes are really around them having a sense of power over other people. Mm -hmm. um, and they've also seen that this works. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, as opposed to them trying to protect themselves or their siblings or one of their parents, they're trying it on to see if this is how they're going to get their needs met. So if you look at narcissism, they have learned throughout their life that the way that their needs are going to be met is by manipulating other people. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times in the play therapy room, um, more specifically with my male clients, that's the work is mm -hmm. they are trying on whether they, they can get their needs met via power and control over other people. And so, you know, I see those things. I see a lot of, um, and I see this more with my female clients, but it's also just kind of how our culture is set up is that boys are fighting with swords and doing these things and girls are playing with my baby dolls and things. But what I see is there's a lot of nurturing play. Mm -hmm. And so they are seeking out nurturing behaviors. They're seeking out someone to care for them unconditionally. Because what we also know about a narcissistic parent is they are unable to see their children as something separate from themselves. And so the term I heard, and I can't remember where I heard it. Oh, I think it was Daniel Sokol. He's a, um, a therapist and I think he's in New York, but he used the term um, complacent object mm -hmm. to describe a child of a narcissist. Is that th these children have to be complacent objects to get shown love. Mm -hmm. And so they have to be, you know, the pretty vase on the table that is exactly what their parent wants them to be. And the minute they talk back or question or anything like that, or don't do what they're supposed to do, maybe they're supposed to be really good at football and they're not good at football mm -hmm. and they don't even enjoy football. They are no longer seen as a complacent object. And so they no longer get love from that, the narcissistic parent. And so they're really seeking that unconditional love. And I do have some of my female clients, um, child clients also are trying to find power in the room and they just, it looks differently. So my boy clients typically are using swords and guns. I do have gun, you know, play guns in my play therapy room. They're really helpful actually. Um, handcuffs and my girl clients are typically trying the more social, um, social ways of getting their, you know, having power over me in the room. Mm -hmm. And so those are, yeah, those are some of the things that I see. I do see um, kids with lower self-worth, lower self-esteem, mm -hmm. and kids that sometimes they don't even know anything about themselves besides mm -hmm. what they're supposed to be. So if, you know, their narcissistic parents' favorite color is blue, their favorite color is blue, and they love everything blue because that's safe for them. That's mm -hmm. safe for them to, you know, to love blue too and to love whatever football team their dad likes or to love doing this activity or, or whatever it might be. 
Right. So yeah, those are some of the things kind of high, high levels of anxiety um, mm-hmm. in my, in my play therapy room. And I'm sure high ACEs scores as well. Yes. And sometimes we, I do, I actually provide those, um, an ACE assessment in all of our intake paperwork. And I don't always get an accurate (laughs) assessment on that because the people who are reporting are the parents. And there's a lot of reasons why parents are fearful for me to know that I'm a scary person, right? When it comes to, um, especially an abusive parent, I'm really scary because I'm a mandated reporter and this child, it's like my job to develop really good, close relationships with Mm -hmm. kids. I'm really good at that. And kids trust me and they share a lot of information with me. And so I get the ACEs assessments and I always take them with a grain of salt until I know more Mm -hmm. because they're not always accurate. But yeah, I do see a lot of kids with, um, you know, pretty high ACE scores. They've seen a lot of violence in the home. Um, they, there's a lot of discord in general in the home. Um, you know, a lot of my kids have been physically harmed by a parent. Um, and so, yeah, I do, I see high ACE scores in my office. Do you see kids with a lot of physical uh, problems like stomach ulcers, and you, you did mention anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so sometimes the reason I'm seeing kids is because of school refusal. Mm-hmm. That's why they're coming in, and that's not actually the problem at all. It's they have extreme levels of anxiety. They have stomach aches. They have headaches. They're having a lot of somatic symptoms, um, and so they they you know, parents are like, they're not always sick. Like, I know they're not always sick. They're refusing to go to school. And what I hear from the kids after working, and again, sometimes I'm not hearing these words come out of my kiddos' mouths, but kind of what I'm seeing in the room is they do not want to be at school because then they don't know what they're coming home to because are they coming home to something safe today or not today? Um, Is there maybe mom's safe at home. Maybe if they're home, if they're around, they know that their parent is safer. Mm -hmm. And so it, the school refusal has nothing actually to do with school at all. It actually has more to do with that anxiety of what they're leaving at home, what they might come back to at home. And um, again, you kind of learn this over time. You don't have any idea initially when they come into your office. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had to be called into court at all on some cases, criminal or family court, anything? Yeah. So I, which I'm sure for some of your listeners, it's like, I'm the unicorn (laughs) in the world is that I do testify in court. um, If I feel like it is in my child client's best interest for me to do so. So sometimes I don't think it is in their best interest. Um, for me to share what has gone on in the therapy room, Mm -hmm. because that information will potentially be used against my kiddo Mm -hmm. in a negative way. So if I don't have confidence that something will be done to change the situation for these kids, then it makes zero sense for me to share that in court. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of my cases, absolutely. I am, 
you know, uh, guardian ad, ad litems are not common, at least here in Colorado, if you're in just family court. Mm -hmm. And so I am the child's voice. Mm -hmm. I am seen as an expert, which I feel have, you know, I feel very proud of. Um, I have some thoughts on other therapists that do provide um, testimony that may not truly understand kind of the domestic violence dynamics at home. They're maybe not even looking for it. And so sometimes their testimony might not be helpful. But yes, I um, do testify in court for my kids um, a lot of times for these cases, um, the high conflict divorce cases. And um, sometimes that my testimony is taken very seriously in court. And the judge's decisions a lot of times are based on my report. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's like I could have been up there talking about, you know, the Broncos game, which they lost this weekend. Um, and <laughs> it makes no difference why I'm there. Like I'm wasting this family's money and wasting mm -hmm. my time. So that's a kind of a tough pill to swallow. And sometimes I don't know, you know, what it's going to look like. Mm -hmm. Because you don't know, you know, if the judge, I'm sure the judge asks you questions and you just don't know how this is going to go. Right. I, um, you know, it, it depends on, and I'm, you know, I've learned kind of the, um, court professionals in the county that I work in. So I do have some idea of how I need to present information for it to be heard, um, which is something for if you're a parent going through this, that's really important is learning how to present your information so that it's heard. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something when I'm working with my adult clients, because I don't just work with kiddos, I work with um, adult victims and survivors too. And that's something that we do is kind of you know, you have a PRE evaluation coming up or a, a CFI eval um, mm -hmm. happening, or you're going to a court hearing, um, what is the best way for you to present so that you're taken seriously? Mm -hmm. So that's something that I do. So I really, if, if you're going to, you know, if your listeners are hoping to have the child therapist present in court, what's helpful to know, one thing is if we don't get releases of information from both, from anyone who has decision-making over their medical decisions, I actually can't share a whole lot in court. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I will have, um, typically the more abusive parent will not provide a release of information for me to share information in open court. Mm -hmm. So then I'm a big waste of time unless the judge does order me. So occasionally I've had a judge say, I need this information to make a decision. Mm -hmm. I am ordering you to answer my questions mm -hmm. so I can make a decision in this case. And sometimes it will be, um, they will just subpoena my file just to the court, like just for the judge so that they can look at my notes and make decisions or they, they order me to speak in open court, but sometimes the judges won't make me order in court. And so I have to say, Unfortunately, I cannot answer that question because I do not have appropriate releases to speak in open court. Mm -hmm. So that can happen. Um, I actually, for the most part, I get consent and releases from both parents um, just because of the way I work in mm -hmm. general. Like from the very beginning, I 
do not align myself with one parent or the other. Um, even when I see abuse or see verbal abuse and emotional abuse, it is so important because of my role to not do that. Because then if I do court testimony and I have aligned myself for one parent, I am not a credible witness. Mm -hmm. I am not helpful for that child. So if you have someone that seems like they don't actually care about yeah. you as a parent, it may be in your best interests. Um, I say that very explicitly to the parents I work with that it's not that I don't care how you are doing based on the nature of this case. I am not going to align with either parent at all. And you're going to get the exact same information from me. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fair. Mm -hmm. Because I've seen it with cases, you know, where you think it's kind of a slam dunk, but the therapist did not have really strong boundaries with parents. And so it's been shown in court, you know, even if it's not true, but if it can be insinuated that you are, um, you know, aligned with one parent or the other, then you're just, your testimony is less credible. Mm -hmm. And so I really, that's really important for the kids, right? That's important right. for my babies that I'm working with. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's important to me. So sometimes it might even feel that I'm, um, you know, dismissing a parent's concerns. It is, I'm taking information from you. I'm not going to provide you a lot of information back because of the safety of the child. Mm -hmm. But that it just it's like you're between a rock and a hard place you know that, yeah. that must be stressful it can be which is why we don't therapists in general don't do this <laughs> like you, you will call hundreds of therapists and they say on their website in their paperwork oh well i don't do testimony mm. i don't do testimony i won't do testimony um i will tell you if you subpoena them they have to show up unless they pay their attorney lots of money to quash the subpoena, which I have done if I really felt like it wasn't in my child, the child's best interest. Mm -hmm. um, but it is a total pain in the tush and it costs me a lot of money to do it. Um, but that's when I feel really strongly about mm -hmm. that this is going to be harmful to the kid I'm working with. Um, but yeah, if you send them a subpoena, they got to go. Um, but it's it is it's like really it's really stressful because i'm gonna have somebody i don't see it this way anymore but you know if if i'm seen as more aligned with one or the other mm -hmm. um one person one attorney is gonna try and make me look like i'm a dum-dum like that's their job that's their job is to make me look not credible to make me look like i don't know what i'm talking about um and i see that that's just their job Mm -hmm. it's annoying right right it's not pleasant to be sitting up there but it's okay right it's it's part of it's just their job um but it is it is stressful we have higher if you do testify you have as a therapist you have higher rates of grievances to your regulatory board because somebody's not going to like what comes out of my mouth at court mm -hmm. and you can grieve a therapist if you want to grieve a therapist, it's not, so whether they're, you know, they're not typically, um, you know, kind of confirmed as a grievance or usually dismissed, mm -hmm. but um, that's a threat to therapists. So that's, they don't do it. And it's, it feels scary if you haven't done it before. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I can't, I can't imagine, you know, I mean, I'm sure you have some rough cases and kids telling you things. I mean, and, and in, you've got to go home at night and relax and you probably take these cases home with you sometimes. Sometimes I ha I am very skilled at kind of leaving things here and making sure I'm taking cases that don't kind of trigger me in different ways. So I have two boys and so I try not to take um, really like really significant child abuse cases when um, the age of the child is the same age as my son mm -hmm. or something like that. Those are the only ones that I really you know, it's harder to separate because I see my six-year-old, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the room. Um, and then I guess that would be helpful to differentiate too, is the majority of time, if I testify, it's in family court. I also testify for child protection um, or in those cases, it's called dependency and neglect court mm -hmm. or those cases. So I've done some of that. Um, and then Fortunately, I've had to um, testify in some criminal cases where I was already working with a parent for domestic violence reasons, and there was a significant assault. Mm -hmm. And so I was called in to testify for those cases. Um, and they feel really different because I'm not an expert mm -hmm. in their world. I am just saying, this is what happened. Like, this is my right? I'm just like a normal witness. Whereas in a family court situation, I am determined to be an expert witness or in child protection, I'm also um, considered an expert witness. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there's some different things, you know, for different, you know, if, if you're a parent in these situations, there's different ways to prepare for both. Um, and so in the child protection world, I think the number one thing that I focus with my adult clients on um, who are the victims of abuse is the number one goal is to build a connection with your ongoing caseworker because what's going to happen, right, is your partner is going to turn on the charm and turn on, even if the, you don't think they're charming at all, th this has worked for them somehow in their world. So they will develop a relationship and their goal is to do it first to do it before you because then they can write the narrative. They can write, write the script on what's going to happen and develop that relationship. And maybe you're the crazy one and they're actually, you know, they're so worried about you. Mm -hmm. They're not worried, but they're going to say they're so worried about you because your anxiety and depression has just been skyrocketing recently. And you're, they're just worried about their kids. Like that's the narrative, right? Right, right. It seems like that's always the narrative. <laughs> that's what's going to happen. And so if you present as really standoffish and you will because you're scared and you have developed this idea that you can't trust anybody with good reason, right? And so it is so much harder for you to reach out and connect with this caseworker and it's the most important thing that you can do, like the most important thing. And so that's just one area that I, I help coach my clients in how to develop that relationship so that they get a sense of who you are rather than just hearing the story and the narrative and going on with that. Mm -hmm. um, and then in family court, it's different because you don't have ongoing relationships with really anyone except for your attorney. 
if you mm -hmm. if you're lucky to have an attorney um so it, it's a little bit different that way mm -hmm. you know it's like what do you do with some of these parents that you know we talked earlier like um they'll take the kids to see you on the days that they have them and they won't tell the other parent when this is. <laughs> yes. So this is, if you are interviewing a child therapist, one of them, and you are in a, I, I always do high conflict with like quote hands, because in my world, high conflict 99 times out of a hundred means abuse. Mm -hmm. Like that's what I see. Um, but if you are searching for a child therapist, um, one of the questions you really need to ask is how do they, how does the therapist manage parent communication and scheduling when you're living in separate houses? And this is super important because again, like I said before, there cannot be for your child's best interest, it cannot appear that the therapist is aligned one way or another. So I require all communication to be done via email, unless it's a last minute, like I, one of my kids like threw up at school the other day and I had to, I had to leave to go pick up my kid from school. And so I had to text the parent of who was bringing this child to me, like, I am so sorry, I have to late cancel, I have to go pick up my kid, he's throwing up at school. Mm -hmm. um, so in that case, not, that's not a huge deal. But for the most part, all emails that I will send go to both parents always. And I require them to put the other parent on all of their emails to mm -hmm. me. And if they don't, then I forward it it, when I respond, I respond to not just the one parent, I respond to both parents mm -hmm. so that it is completely transparent. There's nothing hidden at all. There's no agenda. I'm not going to get triangulated within the parents. And so if I have a phone conversation with a parent because of, of something, like they're trying to update me before session, I will then send an email after the session. I had a phone call today with mom or dad. We discussed XYZ. The phone call happened because it was, you know, right before session, it was important for me to know. Have a lovely day. Right. <laughs> um, and therapists, and it's not that they're not good therapists. They don't realize the danger of not doing this. And so if there's a shift in schedule, usually both parents know. Um, and for the most part, it's like not a big deal if there's a shift in schedule, um, but on occasion it is. And so it's just best to have it be very transparent. So yeah, if you're interviewing for a child therapist, which right now it's really hard to find therapists, we are full, we are so busy. Um, you know, some people are just getting in with whomever they can get in with, but that's something that's really important is how do you communicate things with parents if they're living in separate houses? Mm -hmm. No, I think that's very smart to CC the other parent when you're doing these emails. I mean, I, these counselors have got to get with the program and start doing that. 
because they are triangulating. Yes, yes. And it is not purposeful. I don't think most therapists would do anything on this on purpose, but they were, I mean, unfortunately, putting it out there, we're not trained in anything domestic violence. In my graduate program, I was in a couples and family graduate program because um, I knew I wanted to work with kids and I knew kids didn't grow up in a bubble. So mm -hmm. I needed to know the family aspect, right? And I had maybe 30 minutes in one of my grad school, like family issues classes on domestic violence. And the message was, um, if there's domestic violence, don't do couples therapy. The end. Mm -hmm. Like, done. Um, I do know my alma mater is doing a better job and they're now having um, speakers come in specific on domestic violence for the couples and family program. But one, right, it's like one lecture, one two-hour lecture, three-hour lecture on domestic violence is not enough to train people on the nuances of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. It's a great start. Like, hallelujah, my school is doing that, but more schools do need to do this, which is why I did start kind of doing some, um, before COVID, I did a lot of in-person trainings for therapists on working with domestic violence in different um, areas of our work, and then kind of did some online stuff because there's not a whole lot out there, and except, you know, apart from the advocacy training that is different, right? The advocacy training isn't how do you work in a private practice with high conflict cases, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of agencies, they don't have um, good policies and procedures for this either. So if you're going to a community mental health center, that you know, might be an issue as well. So there's a lot of, a lot of work to be done, but I'm happy to say that I'm, I'm doing it um, because yeah, there's just, it needs to be done. Like more mental health professionals need to understand these, right? This small change that I've done, like the small little thing that I've done on being really transparent with communication has saved me a lot of headaches. Mm -hmm and has protected my kids that I'm working with. Now, have you ever had to um, do like an emergency admission for one, one of these kids that maybe isn't doing so well with the situation that they're in? So typically I have not had to do, you know, like a mental health hold. So I am not affiliated with a hospital, which mm -hmm. you need to have that affiliation to actually for me to put someone on hold. I have had families where this, the suicide risk has been high enough to where um, the parent needed to, we set up a plan where the parent needed to take the child. Here we, t I recommend the Children's Hospital of Denver. It's one of the best in the nation. Um, they need to take their child from therapy to there and I'm actually going to call the emergency room and let them know they're coming. Mm -hmm. And if they don't show up, then I will send police to your house mm -hmm. to do this for a welfare check um, in which then they're going to take the child to Children's yeah. Hospital. Um, I don't do that very often. What I see more, and it's, and it's really hard, like I said before, I'm a really scary person mm -hmm. because I'm a mandated reporter. Mm -hmm. So if you're telling me that there's domestic violence happening and it's physical violence happening in the home and the children are in the home, I'm required to call child protection and report it. Mm -hmm. And what I hear is like, well, they were upstairs sleeping. They were not in the same room. They didn't see anything. 
and I still have to call because guess what they do? They hear it. They mm -hmm. see it. They know it. They see you the next morning. Mm -hmm. They know. Your kids know. And so the way I call child protection makes it less scary because if I do know there's domestic violence or there's um, abuse going on, then I also get to share what resources I believe are necessary for this to, to end, for that child to be safe. So if I know that you need housing resources, if I know that there's significant financial abuse, I get to let, I, I put that in the report mm -hmm. so that they show up knowing this person actually to eliminate the risk of further abuse, this person needs all these resources. And so that is a huge piece of my reports. And so I am very honest with when I have to report. Um, if I'm concerned about the child's safety of me reporting, I do not tell the parents first. Mm -hmm. Most of the time I tell parents because I feel like it's the most respectful thing to do is, you know, so-and-so shared this with me. I am a mandated reporter. It's not my job to investigate the truth of this, right? Because that's what usually the abusive parent is like, no, that's lying. He's lying. He's saying it. And it's like, that's not my job, right? There are people actually trained to do this. My job is just to report and to love on your kid, like to give them all my care. Um, and so that is, you know, the way I report is usually helpful. Mm -hmm. in these cases. Um, and then I get to be a part of that case too. So that is usually to the benefit of the parent who is being abused, mm -hmm. was having me be an active part of the case. So it is really scary. I mean, it is really scary to hear those words mm -hmm. from your therapist that I, I have to call child protection. Um, mm -hmm. And it can work out okay it really can so do you have anyone else working with you I um so I am the clinical director I own the practice but I do have other therapists that practice here at my practice mm -hmm. um and one of them also specializes in domestic violence and narcissistic abuse she um runs the group some of the groups that i run here and um she does work with some of these kiddos but she does a little bit more work with um the parents i do about half and half mm -hmm. um work with kids and work with with adult victims and survivors um and then the other therapists here really specialize in working with kids and teens in general and then they have access to me if there is um mm -hmm you know, they, they're suspecting domestic violence in the case, they have full access to me. But I wanted to offer that, you know, it is so hard so often, we're really talking about how horrible the court systems that are, that they're, you know, mental health don't, they don't know anything about domestic violence, child protection doesn't know what they're doing and all of the things, but there is, there is hope because I see parents who are victims move to that survivor and then move on and kind of thrive in their world. And then I also see kids do the same thing. Mm -hmm. I see kids build resilience and do amazing things. And so it's not this end all be all of, you know, your kids are ruined forever. Mm 
-hmm. And um, yeah, something I'd love for your, your viewers to hear. And my guess is the majority of them are mamas mm -hmm. that are dealing with family court is that, you know, a lot of what we hear is like, well, my children don't actually have a model of a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. They've only seen me with an abusive partner. That's what they've seen. And that's not the only way they learn how to be in a relationship. And so you actually have more power than you think because one of the things that's modeled to them and will make a bigger difference is their relationship with you. So if you can provide a healthy relationship with your child, they will feel what that is and be able to take that with them. So like we were talking about before, a narcissist cannot provide unconditional love. Mm -hmm. They are not capable. Truly, they're not capable of I doing agree. that. Mm -hmm. And there's always strings attached. And we could go, you know, forever into the etiology and all of that, mm -hmm. but they're just not, they're not capable of doing that. And you are. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to be able to, you're, if you can provide that unconditional love for them, provide that attachment and connection with your child. If you can, um, I always use the term compassionate boundaries because a lot of people, you know, hear what I'm saying. They're like, oh, so you want my kid to be able to run all over me and where it's just about connection and I don't set rules or discipline. Nope, that's not it at all. But the way the boundaries need to be set is through compassion and they need to know it's coming from a place of loving them rather than a punishment because a punishment doesn't actually work doesn't teach. What does it teach? It teaches those narcissistic abusive behaviors. So mm -hmm. really focusing on those compassionate boundaries, teaching them empathy. And this isn't something you teach them through like books as much or through mm -hmm. a, a class or it's through what you're giving them. So if they're a disaster, right? Like I have one kiddo who goes to school, he holds his stuff together all day at school right? Where he wants the teacher to like him and friends mm -hmm. to like him. And he wants to be seen as this good kid, right? And then he comes home and he's a disaster. Because mm -hmm. I'm safe for him to be a disaster. He, he doesn't have to show me the perfect self because he knows I love him no matter what. It's not fun as a parent when <laughs> they're the disaster with you. But being able to see, wow, was today hard? Was it hard? you know, being good the whole day or focusing the whole day, that must've been hard. Mm -hmm. And I need you to stop throwing your shoes at me. Mm -hmm. right? right. Because right. I don't want to get hurt. We're going to, you know, we're in the kitchen. You're going to knock over the drink that's on the table and that's just going to be a huge disaster. What can we do so that you can feel better and not have to throw shoes at me? Cause I do, I get shoes mm -hmm. thrown at me. Like, right, this child therapist is saying, it is normal for your kids to misbehave and throw shoes if they're angry and frustrated, right? right? And so it's showing, you know, we as therapist, child therapists don't, we don't have these perfect kids, you know? It's like people think we do, no, nope, I got bad mom moments too. Um, but being able to show them empathy that you see them through the behavior. It's not the behavior you're seeing through that behavior. So if you can do those things and work on those things, they will feel it. They will learn it. They will see a relationship that feels good, feels this way. And then most of the time you never have to explain 
their dad's behavior, like how their dad's a narcissist. And you don't have to explain that mm-hmm. because they will learn. They mm-hmm. under, they will understand as their cognitive development allows them to understand. And they're like, wow, this relationship feels good. This relationship doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I think these kids know more and see more than, you know, the parent realizes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they're really good, right? Their survival. And I say that it seems really, you know, over-exaggerated maybe, but their survival is, is based on watching the environment, just like uh, somewhat a victim of domestic violence. They're so skilled, right? At noticing the environment, their partner comes home, throws the mail on the table. And by the way, they threw that mail on the table, boom, boom, boom. Their brain thinks so quickly of what they need to do that evening to stay safe and to keep their family safe. It is almost automatic. And so kids do the same thing is they take inventory of what's going on in their environment and they will act accordingly. Mm-hmm. So they're always paying attention. They're always seeing what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been great talking to you. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I think really <laughs> focusing on, you know, uh-huh. this is, and I say this even with, you know, that there is hope for this, mm-hmm. but some of you are in for the long haul. Post-separation abuse, especially through litigation, feels like it's forever. Mm-hmm. And there is an end. Mm-hmm. There will be an end. And you have so much power in your kids' okayness. Mm-hmm. And that you can be what your kids need you to be so that they grow up to be really resilient. Excellent. How can people reach you? Yeah. So there's a couple of ways to reach me. So my behavioral health, you know, my private practice is called Arvada Therapy Solutions. And so if you are in Colorado, you can reach me at Sybil, that's S-Y-B-I-L at Arvada therapy solutions.com and i say only for people in colorado because my license restricts me to it limits me to only work with people in colorado Mm -hmm. um so i can't work with people out of state at my therapy practice but part of the reason for this new program that i am starting called um, rising beyond power and control is to close that gap because i have had people from outside of the state try and find ways to work with me and so this is my way of figuring that out so that program um if you are not in the state of colorado or you're in the state of colorado and you want to reach out this way it's totally fine it's info at rising beyond pc.com and you will get me directly at either of those addresses as directly to me and then if you have more questions about things you can um you know just go to either website so the websites are um arvadatherapysolutions.com or um the rising beyond website i actually removed the power and control from the um the web address so that it was a little bit less conspicuous so if you're worried about someone monitoring your um social media or your um emails or what you're searching. Um, it is risingbeyondpc.com. So, um, you know, if your partner is monitoring, they see something that says power and control in your inbox or in your um, right. 
browsing history, they're going to click on that because they want to know what that is. So this is a little bit less conspicuous. And then clear your browsing history. I think there's on our resources page, there's a link to how to clear your browsing history um, because that's really important if you don't feel like you're safe and you're, you're being monitored. Well, it was excellent having you on and I'd like to have you come back on as a return guest. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If you all have things that are coming up, like consistent questions in any of the realms that I do, I'm happy to come back. Oh, that's great. Well, um, thank you for coming on. Uh, don't jump off. Slam the Gavel is a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again with Sybil and other guests in uh, more exciting episodes. Thank you so much. <laughs>